Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. I'm uh, hanging out today with uh, Richard Holden, who's the Professor of Economics at UNSW Business School. He was previously at the University of Chicago and MIT. And way before that, uh, he, we were debating rivals at the university. <laughs> you know, it's really interesting, Richard, that, uh, um, that you ended up going into economics. I always remember when, when we were debating together, whenever the topic was vaguely around economics, we would do our best to squirrel it to be about something completely different because we were so scared to get you on your favorite subject. That's the one thing I know something about. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's been really interesting watching your career and, and, and your publications. And uh, I think in, in many ways now economics has become, if anything, more relevant in this new world. Uh, it's not the, uh, as Thomas Carlyle said, the dismal science is more like the science for a dismal world. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of become really important to a whole range of public policy debates. And as social science tends to inform these debates more, uh, you know, economics and particularly the uh, empirical work that goes behind it and data-driven stuff has become more and more relevant, I think. Yeah. And uh, and I think this question of inequality is, is probably a good place to start, given that, I mean, given the massive political upheavals around the world now. And a lot of people put this at the, uh, at the feet of globalization. Uh, but I'm really interested in, in, in your work around network capital. Can, can, you, can you tell us a little bit about, about that and, and maybe that story about uh, uh, William Zeckendorf? Absolutely. And just as a precursor to that, as you say, inequality is an, an enormous issue and it's really garnered um, you know, much more mainstream attention now. It's obviously been people talking about it for a long time. But it's become very mainstream. You have, you know, uh, the chair of the Federal Reserve Bank uh, in the United States, Janet Yellen, talking about how it can be a drag on growth. You know, people like former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers talking about it all. I mean, these are these are people who wouldn't have necessarily been seen as sort of agitators against, uh, <laughs> you know, inequality and the implications of, if you like, capitalism. Um, you know, some time ago, so it's become a very mainstream thing here. And um, you know, at UNSW, one of the things that we're doing. Uh, is trying to tackle what we call uh, some of the grand challenges of our time. And uh, the first three of those are around climate change, migrants and refugees, and the third one, which I'm the academic co-lead of, is around inequality. So right. uh, it's, it's even made it to UNSW, <laughs> uh, this kind of discussion. So, yeah, as you said, I've done some work on uh, with, with Robbie Akalov, who's a professor at, uh, Warwick, at the University of Warwick, around what we call network capital. And uh, the idea can really be illustrated by this, this, this story that we talk about. There's a, a very famous property developer. When I, when I tell this story, people think I'm talking about Donald Trump because there's sort of so, much, uh, there's so many similarities, at least up to a point. Uh, so the kind of leading property developer of the 50s and 60s and to a degree the 1970s in the US, particularly in New York, was a guy called William Zeckendorf. And he was, uh, you know, he has all these similarities to Trump. His father used to be in property development. He got his kids into the business. Um, he once got over leveraged and nearly went bankrupt as a result of it. Uh, he used to hold court at this nightclub called the Monte Carlo, sort of three nights a week. And he loved uh, French antiques. And he loved French antiques. So, he's, you know, <laughs> he, he's the pre-Trump Trump. He never ran for president, but, that's a, you know... Uh, uh, and and what he illustrates really is the power of how a, a person who's centrally connected in a network can really help coordinate what people believe about what other people believe is going to happen. 
And so um, there's a nice, a, a nice illustration with a, uh, a development that happened uh, in, uh, in Canada. So the Canadian National Railroad for a long time had um, been trying to develop this 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 site and uh, wanted to turn it from basically a railroad junkyard into a, a nice commercial development. And they approached a number of Canadian developers that all said, "No, this is too hard." You see, like the sort of commercial strips all over on St James St James Street, and you want us to put up a new thing and get everyone to move. And people aren't going to move unless they think everyone else is going to move, and it's just just not going to get this thing off the ground. And so they approached Zeckendorf, and Zeckendorf said, well, I'll, I'll take on the challenge. And, uh, and he found it pretty hard, even though he was a very plugged-in guy, he found it very hard initially to, to get anything to work. And uh, through uh, some connections that he had through corporate boards that he sat on, uh, he managed to get uh, a very large bank uh, to uh, Royal Bank of Canada to agree to be an anchor, an anchor tenant. Uh, and that got him the first half of the financing from MetLife. And once he got first half of the financing, people started to think, well, this thing's really going to happen. Right. And then he got another big tenant, and the whole thing just snowballed from there and became an enormous success. And it really showed how someone who is centrally connected um, is able to, to kind of uh, make people believe and understand that something's going to happen. So it wasn't just that um, you know, he spoke for a lot of money. It wasn't just that he had connections. It was people knew that he had those connections. Right. And they knew that if... Uh, you know, Royal Bank of Canada was going to be involved, then other people would know the Royal Bank of Canada was going to be involved. And presumably his connections were with people who themselves stood behind lots of capital. Exactly. And so what he was able to do was basically assemble a lot of capital, even though it wasn't his. And through that uh, sort of central role in the network, he paid a key part in the, the capital assembly process. And so um, you know, Akalov's and my theory of network capital is really, you know, you'd probably think it's recreational mathematics if you looked at it, but this is what's, what's, what's behind I, it. I, I, I don't normally re- recreate with maths. But <laughs> <laughs> I'll take your word for yeah, it. Yeah, it's revealing that I would say something like that, I guess. Um, but what's really behind it is, is, a, is a formal theory of saying people with a central network position are able to play a really important role in assembling capital. And of course, if you can assemble a lot of capital and create economic value, do projects that weren't otherwise able to be done, yeah. then uh, you're going to get paid for that. And Zeckendorf certainly got paid very, very handsomely. And so coming back to inequality, one of the things that we think is going on is that um, you know people are getting, with capital being more mobile and uh, arguably more important in the production process, uh, people who are able to assemble that capital through their network position are getting paid disproportionately. Uh, c- certainly, very handsomely, and you know, you, you know, sort of disproportionately is a value judgment. But the, the the figure I like to look at is if if you look at the um, uh, you know the bottom the average uh, the average household income of the bottom ninety percent in America, it's around thirty thousand dollars. If you look at the average household income of the top one percent, it's about one point two million dollars. If you look at the average household income of the top point one percent. It's, it's a little over $6.5 million a year, and that's risen a great deal over time. And people like uh, Tomar Piketty and Emmanuel Sayers have done an enormously uh, impressive job in documenting that, that rise over time. Andrew Lee here in Australia, who's an economist, who's now a member of parliament, has done a similar exercise for Australia. That's really risen over time. And so one of the puzzles for economists is, you know, how come these top income shares have gone up so much over time? Right. And... You know, traditionally, we've really only had two explanations. You know, you get paid for your physical or financial capital, or you get paid for your human capital. And there's no denying that hedge fund managers, you know, are smart. They've got some human capital, but plenty of other people have got human capital too. 
Um, they've got financial capital, uh, but plenty of other people have got more financial capital, yet these people are getting paid these enormous sums. So if I told you that the, the 10th highest paid hedge fund manager in Greenwich, Connecticut makes about a billion dollars a year, it's a billion dollars a year, so what are they bringing to the table? And sure, they're bringing some human capital, sure, they're bringing some financial capital, but our, um, our contribution is to say we think that they're bringing some network capital to the table. They're assembling all this capital that can be put to a more productive use. When you look at that, that 0.01%, uh, what proportion do you believe are represented by these financiers versus technologists? I mean, are, are these, because I mean, there's a lot of new wealth created by disruptive technology as well. Mm-hmm. Are they also network capitalists? Yeah, so that's a, that's a fantastic question. So just on the numbers, on the raw numbers, they are, uh, by sort of headcount, uh, much more likely to be in the financial sector. Right. Uh, of course, you know, if you look at the Sergey Brins or Mark Zuckerbergs of the world and you go through various other examples, you know, they've made a lot of money. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, you put into that mix, you know, people who, who, who've made billions of dollars in a year through through technology, that's certainly a big, uh, a big part of the puzzle as well. But, you know, you touch on a great point, which is, you know, are they somehow, you know, assembling network capital? And we think that they are, and we talk about this in the in, in the paper. So they're less, I think, about assembling financial capital from investors, you know, from from limited partners, the way that a hedge fund or private equity fund manager might do. But they're really assembling talent uh, of various forms. Now they've got to get capital together as well. But you imagine what it takes to get a Google or a Facebook off the ground. You know, that requires bringing together people with disparate skills and having them work cohesively together and believe that they can work cohesively together. Same with, you know, an Apple or something like that. So, you know, you look at someone like Steve Jobs and, uh, you know, who knows exactly why he, was, why he was incredibly successful. Maybe it was just the vision and that he could dream of an iPhone before anyone could dream of an iPhone. That's probably part of the, part of the puzzle. But he also brought together a remarkable team of people. And, you know, you look at, you, know, you read the sort of histories of it and talk to people who were involved in it. Um, you know, part of it was that he was able to bring together somehow this extraordinary group of people and keep them together in a way that it's not clear that other people would have been able to do. So I guess given the diagnosis, um, what, what can be done in terms of, I mean, surely this is more than just finding more ways to tax the network capitalists, right? Right. So there's a, there's a couple of things, which is one, network capital, um, you know, if you believe in the concept, it's still hard to identify. Yeah. So does Zuckerberg have a lot of network capital? Does the hedge fund manager have a lot of network capital? How much do they have? What we can observe is their earnings. Well, sometimes you can only guess sort of you know, post-fact about whether they might have it based on their exactly. amount of money there. So was it their human capital? Was it their network capital? What you observe is how much money they make. So you, can, you, can ta- you hmm. can't tax what you don't see. Hmm. So you can tax that. So if you tax that, firstly, you know, you're going to get less of it. Uh, you're going to get less innovation and so on. Um, and you're also going to be over-inclusive when you yeah. do that. So that seems like a problematic approach to trying to deal with network capital. My, my thought is that you really want to take it at the other end of the spectrum, which is you want to make sure people have more access to network capital. So you can imagine that even from the you know very early on, um, you know things to do with education, uh, making sure people aren't in essentially segregated school districts. It might even go down to primary school or things like that, where you want to make sure that um, you know people basically are in the are in the network capital lottery, or at least have a fair lottery ticket in that. And it might not be you know, in not in terms everyone's... of access to networks. In terms of access to networks, so you know we've certainly haven't solved the problem of access to good quality education, particularly in the United States, but you know probably not anywhere if we solved that particularly well, but we, we kind of know what we should be doing about that. Mm. Um, and you know, my, my friend and co-author at, at Harvard, Roland Fryer, 
um, you know, is a, a, a John Bates Clark medalist for the best economist in the world under 40 and so on, uh, has done a lot of work about what actually works in schooling through randomised controlled trials, essentially a drug trials. So we know the causal effect of having a better teacher, having a longer school day, having high dose intensive tutoring, having school uniforms, having a, you know having incentives and what works, what doesn't work. Incentives, by the way, don't work very well. Um, <laughs> so we kind of know what to do. We still got to go do it, but we kind of know what works in terms of the human capital side of things. But in terms of the network capital sides of things, you know, uh, we really haven't haven't touched on that yet. And and part of it is not, not everyone's going to be a Mark Zuckerberg or a Sergey Brin, um, but people might be connected to those people. So people who might know those people, you know, I'm not talking about them, you know, they're just going to sort of, you know, write them a check or something like that. But being connected to people who are well connected right. is obviously a valuable thing. But, but just because you get a sponsored ride to an Ivy League university doesn't mean they're going to invite you to the Skull and Crossbones Society. Well, no, that's exactly right. And one of the things I think is interesting about this is, you know, we, we've now got to the point where um, there's needs blind admission and there's very good funding for people who get into, you know, the very top universities. So you need to get into Harvard or Yale or Stanford. It's needs blind admission. And if your parents make less than $250,000 a year, you pay no tuition. Right. Okay. So that's a great thing. And, and you know, it's wonderful that that's happening. By the way, Larry Summers, who I referred to before, was really a key architect of that. Um, so that's a wonderful thing. But if network capital is formed at skull and, skull and Bones, then that doesn't solve that problem. Moreover, if network capital is actually formed in business school, then maybe in addition to what we're doing at the undergraduate level, maybe we need to be thinking about access to and scholarships for MBA programs and things like that, right. which doesn't sound like an obvious idea. You know, We should be subsidizing people to go to Wharton or Harvard Business School or Stanford Business School. But if that's where network capital is formed, and I, I don't know the answer to that question, but it's plausible that, that it might be, then we maybe need to be focusing more on, on that. Basically, the key, I think, is to focus on where network capital is created and formed and making sure that there's access to that that's not segregated along all the income, gender, race and other lines that, that we know are problematic. Do you think a, a similar concept of network capital also applies you know, to why certain individuals within companies are also rainmakers um, or very successful, their ability to essentially connect resources and uh, capabilities and people within within companies. I think that's that's exactly right. And we know within professional services firms, for instance, there's as you say, there's very often you know, you know a small number of, of rainmakers. And the traditional view of that would be, you know, they sort of know something, or they've got you know they've got a connection with the client or something like that. But as you point to, a really important part of it is marshalling the internal resources. And that's not just often not just the sort of command system of you're going to do this but um, making people believe that something's going to happen. Which and are when these that, higher order... Which these higher order beliefs, exactly. Yeah. It's beliefs about what other people believe. And so if I'm part of a team, you know, it's a bit like, it sounds a little, mm. little strange to think of it, but, you know, maybe doing an M&A deal or working on a law transaction or something is a little bit like storming a beachhead, which is uh, I'm willing to do it, but only if we're going as a team. Because yeah. I know if I'm the only one storming the beachhead... I'm definitely dying. I'm definitely dying, right? <laughs> so if, if I'm the only one working the 120-hour <clears> week... The deal's not going to happen, but if everyone else is doing it and uh, you know really putting everything into it, then, then then it might work. It feels like this is going to become, if anything, more important in this sort of new world we're moving into, where companies and organisations are becoming de- more decentralised and more virtual. That the ability of certain individuals to marshal resources in this environment actually becomes a key determinant for success. I think it absolutely is. We're, we're clearly moving away from, it's been going on for a very long time, <laughs> but we're clearly moving away from, if you like, a sort of command and control firm where 
uh, there's a production line and what do you need to do? You need to make sure the production line's moving and you need you know, a full person standing there making sure people aren't shirking and just making sure that that's, that that's happening. And um, that's something that's uh, kind of, you know, that still exists, but that's basically an old world. Uh, that's kind of like an old world firm. And in these more, uh, if you like, virtual firms, as you, you were pointing to, it's obviously the case that um, uh, there's a different, you know, monitoring doesn't work the same way that it used to. I mentioned before I was never particularly good at economics, but one thing I do remember was one of the big questions in recent times was what are the boundaries of a firm? Why, why does a company exist? Yeah, and and I remember in one of your papers that you wrote about sort of a young, early twenties, uh, was it Ronald Coase? Ronald Coase, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know who asked this quite provocative upstart question. Yeah, um, where 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 is our current thinking around that? Like why why do I mean especially in this current environment. Why should a company exist? Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a great question. As you say, it goes back to Coase, who, who posed this fantastic question as a 21-year-old undergraduate in the, in the early 1930s. His lecturers must have really hated him. Uh, yeah, I think they, they, they may well have. He makes reference to that in his uh, Nobel speech. Um, he sadly passed away now, but he lived to, to over 100. And, uh, and uh, he asked this great question, which is, he basically said, I've been taking all these economics courses. People keep telling me that like, markets are really good. Oh, okay. Well, if markets are so good, how come there are these things called firms, which don't resemble a market, but resemble, you know, more of a command and control economy? You've got to remember that, you know, this is 1931 or so when he's when he's doing this. So this is really at the time where there's a debate about, you know, should we run our economy like the Soviet, you know, like the Soviet <laughs> Union are running their economy? Should we run it like Britain's running it? Um, and that was a very live debate then. And um, and 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 uh, he really sort of pointed out that, you know, there must be something that's defective about the price mechanism that makes us sometimes want to use firms. Um, and, and, and it's still a striking factor today that about half of all of economic activity takes place in the market and about half takes place within firms. And so why is that? It's a timely question. The Nobel Prize in Economics last year was awarded to um, Oliver Hart and Bengt Holmstrom. Uh, um, Oliver Hart, who was my, my PhD advisor, in fact. Uh, and his contribu- Oliver's contribution is really all around thinking formally about the boundary of the firm. Right. And in his theory, which has become known as property rights theory, what it really emphasises is the fact that when you have disaggregated market transactions and you can't perfectly contract on everything, you live in a world with incomplete contracts, so you can't foresee every future contingency, you don't understand that there are different you know, different grades of coal or things like this, or there might be a new technology emerges to, you know, dig this stuff out cheaper or get a different grade and, and so on. Um, you know, obviously we live in, in, in a world with incomplete contracts. Then in that situation, um, we're going to end up bargaining with each other after the fact, and that leads to what's known as the holdup problem. So, you know, if, if, you, uh, if you run a coal mine and I run an electricity generating plant, it's a bit of an old world example, I have to think up the <laughs> clean green version of this, but uh, this one still works. Um, you know, if, if you run the coal mine, I run the electricity generating plant, we write a contract about you supplying me coal. Uh, and then we turn around and there's something that's not covered by the contract. You might say to me, well, you know, like it turns out this coal's, you know, kind of expensive to, kind of expensive to get. And uh, as a result of that, we need to renegotiate the price. And if right. the contract's silent on it, then you're going to be able to extract something from me. Now, if it's important that I make some relationship-specific investment in my electricity generating plant, then anticipating that I'm not going to get all the value out of the investment, you're going to capture some of it, I'm going to underinvest. And that's going to lead to an inefficiency. 
and vertical integration, or basically the electricity generating plant, say, owning the coal mine, gets around that holdup problem. So right there is a theory of the firm, and it basically says uh, whoever has the most important relationship-specific investment should naturally be the owner of owner of the assets, and that right there tells you where the boundary of the firm might be. Huh. I mean, does this start to change, you know, in a world where we look at things like smart contracts and blockchain, where you potentially can build more, I guess, variables into these arrangements? Yeah, so the great hope of this sort of smart contract technology is that it may work on that incomplete contract margin. So if we can make incomplete contracts a little bit less incomplete, right. then basically the market is going to be able to substitute for the firm. If, if I'm not worried about holdup, because I know this smart contract is going to take care of it, yeah. then... Because uh, you're actually building the incompleteness in, uh, by design. Exactly. And um, because it's done in this distributed way, there's there's some hope that at least some of the incompleteness that we see in contracts could go away. And that's, you, you know, if that works and where that works, we would expect to see more transactions take place, uh, you know, in an arm's length market rather than integrated in a firm. So we'd expect all else equal if you like to see smaller firms and more activity in the market. How does that translate to us as individuals? I mean, do, do we all just essentially then become freelancers, you know, with our own smart contracts that are part of a, a bigger firm contract who's, you know, then working out in the market? Yeah, in the limit, I guess that's that's what happens. I mean, you're still going to have things like that, that where you have uh, indivisibility. So coal mine's still going to be a coal mine. We're probably right. not going to have freelance coal miners. There are sort of technolo- <laughs> there are technological reasons, economies of scale and things like that, why you might want to, why might you, you might expect those things to still be kind of a unit of economic activity. Hmm. But, um, but you're exactly right. It should lead to less stuff happening within firms and more stuff happening in the market. Now, whether, the, whether this actually works or not uh, is another thing. And I don't mean work at a technological level. I think we know um, that blockchain and, and related technologies uh, you know, are very promising and, and sort of work in the way that they're designed to technically work. Whether they can solve some of these contracting problems um, you know, is, a, is, an, is an open question and another matter. What, what else are you seeing uh, around blockchain and smart contracts that, that, that is interesting you at the moment? Well, I think there's, there's um, a lot of stuff going on in the financial sector in particular. And so, for instance, in completing transactions, we obviously have uh, situations now where, uh, you know, if you buy something on eBay, if you, you know, if you use PayPal or something like that, if you use a bank, for instance, well, you know, what, sitting here in Australia, you use one of the big four banks as a, an intermediary to, to clear a transaction. It's not obvious that we'll need those intermediaries anymore, that that can't be done on a, on a distributed basis. Right. And get around the worry that, you know, you're not going to pay me because these things are self-executing. And if that happens, you know, that has the potential to, to be a real shake-up for the financial sector. And I think so much so that, um, you know, the banks themselves are trying to get out in front of this and trying to develop the technology them, themselves. And that's, you know, the best measure uh, in a way. Of the, of the promise of it is that the, the people who might be displaced or disrupted by the technology uh, kind of get it already and they're nervous about it. <laughs> and so they're trying to get out in front of it. The financial services is an interesting sector for this because it's one of the prime candidates for massive automation and the replacement of human beings with uh, algorithms, artificial intelligence. Uh, and it makes me wonder that whether the, the last few people remaining in financial services will be these network capitalists that we talked about 
uh, the ability, because this is something which an algorithm potentially can't do so well, which is marshal other human beings to then, you know, believe in, in a project. Well, that's exactly right. And if you think about, um, you know, if you think back 50 years or something like that, the role of a bank manager was incredibly important. And so yeah. uh, it was really hard to make a home loan or a small business loan in, you know, rural Kansas if you weren't right there on the ground. Right. Uh, and now it's quite possible Because they to were do the that. primary node for information. They were the primary node for information, right? And as you point out, we now have, you know, algorithms that can do as good or potentially a better job than, than a human being sitting there assessing the credit worthiness of stuff. Now, there, there are issues with that, soft information and knowing people. There's, there's stuff that human beings can know that algorithms potentially can't. Uh, but on the other hand, those human beings are kind of expensive. Um, and so we've already seen, of course, across, say, the United States, for example, it's obviously true in Australia, it's true in the UK and other jurisdictions, you know, a massive consolidation of, you know, small regional banks being rolled up into into larger ones and arguably the sort of information aspects of it that you point to have driven a lot of that. But you can imagine that going even further um, and ending up with even more centralisation there. And uh, and as you say, then what's the scarce resource in a world like that? Well, it's this, this network capital. Right. One of the key parts of, of, of your account of network capital is um, this idea of higher order beliefs. And, mm-hmm. and this actually is something that comes from game theory, right? Exactly, exactly. So, Can you explain uh, a bit about that? Yeah, exactly. So if you, um, basically anyone who's seen A Beautiful Mind or read the book and you know, knows of, of John Nash, you know, Nash developed this this equilibrium concept. He, um, he was an Australian guy who liked to fight, right? <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Um, no, so 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 he developed this concept of a, of an equilibrium point for a game, which was a which, which was a major advance. But actually, someone with an Australian connection comes into this story, which is um, people then obviously said, well, you know, in a lot of strategic situations, I mean, game theory is really just a, a method of studying strategic interactions. In a lot of strategic interactions, strategic situations, um, we've got different information. The parties have different information. You know, I know how credit worthy I am. I know how hard I'm going to work or how costly effort is to move, a whole variety of things. And um, in those situations, we're going to um, form beliefs about what the other party's, you know, cost of effort is, the value of their car, how well they've garaged it and things like that. And so actually John Hassani, who's certainly not Australian, but did actually do a uh, master's degree at the University of Sydney uh, okay. many years ago, many, many, many years ago, um, who shared the Nobel Prize with John Nash, uh, developed an idea of basically applying the Nash equilibrium concept to games where you have incomplete information. And Hassani's key idea there is, okay, it's going to be complicated just to think about, or it's going to be insufficient really, just to think about what I believe about your information. Uh, it's also going to matter what you believe that I believe about your information. And that process, you know, sort of, you know, is like a dog chasing its tail. That doesn't end. And so what Hassani pointed out is that actually the what he called the infinite hierarchy of beliefs, what I believe about you believe that I believe that you believe and so on ad infinitum actually is really important. And right. so the he whole did of it. mirrors. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so it turns out that these very higher order beliefs, you know, the 78th level up of I believe that you believe is actually quite important to um, determining how we play in the game. Right. And, you know, this has been validated in laboratory experiments and various other things. Certainly in poker. (laughs) Certainly. And that's a that's a really good um, that's a really good example of it. And so um, these higher order beliefs matter a lot. And 
I guess the concept behind network capital and what we call these central players as movers and shakers is that um, what they are able to do is sort of coordinate these higher order beliefs. And the closer you can get to, to what, what's known as common knowledge, basically where the infinite hierarchy of beliefs is filled out, I know that you know that I know all the way up, um, is a point where we have common knowledge that by creating common knowledge, uh, we can uh, create more certainty around the strategic interaction. Right. Well, also more certainty about we're all going to do well out of this. Right? Exa- exactly. Exactly. And it feels like in this world that we may be moving back into another Cold War type scenario. <laughs> this is going to be another area that's going to be of also great interest to people. Well, I think, you know, the Trump presidency is an interesting study. I mean, there's many interesting. And, Please don't and, say anything that's going to get my visa invalidated. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> don't want to go there. <laughs> uh, um, no, not at all. But I think one of the things, the many interesting interesting things about Trump, you know, one of the hallmarks is he's, he's um, almost creating strategic uncertainty. He, he keeps talking about wanting to leave all options on the table. It's almost as if he's cultivating a slightly saner version of sort of, you know, Kim Jong-il, which is, you know, who knows right. what he's going to do. But, but this is actually quite an effective strategy in game theory, isn't it? I, exactly. And so, you know, once you, uh, if we had common knowledge uh, in these settings, say between you know Turnbull and Trump about what they're going to do about this. Uh, Trumbull, you mean? Uh, yeah, sorry, yeah. Or is it or is it Trumbull? I, I've, <laughs> I've heard it. I've heard it a few different ways now from the White House press secretary. Um, if we had you know common knowledge about that, then it'd just be clear the deal's going to be honoured. The deal's not going to be honoured. It's going to be renegotiated in this way. That's not necessarily in the United States' interest or in Trump's interest, at least. And uh, and so by creating this strategic uncertainty, he thinks he can sort of use it to his advantage, and that. Um, you know, that may well be the case in, in some of the other diplomatic interactions that he has. There was that classic story, I think it was about Louis XIV, who had two advisors who both whispered in his ear, but you never knew which one whose advice he was taking. Exactly. So I think this idea of strategic uncertainty and and, uh, and ruling is uh, is not a new one. <laughs> it's not a new one. It, uh, I, but I it certainly quite, is a good one. I <laughs> can't quite get back as far as you can, but, you know, Jeremy Bentham famously talked about how to design civil service tests. Uh, and of course, it's in you know the the language of the time where he talks about impossibilizing knowledge and things like that, which is uh, not a word you see too often today. But you know, he basically said you don't want to tell them what's on the test, or they're only going to study the stuff that you tell them is on the test. And that's uh, tried and true practice at universities <laughs> around the world. <laughs> well, Richard, it's great to see you. Uh, thank you very much for being on the show. Great to be with you. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds.